Thanks, Amy. So the last few weeks, um, this is a heavy message today. The last few weeks, there has been uh, a number of calls of indicting Russia for genocide, and the United States and the UN haven't yet come down to that point. There's an acknowledgement, certainly, of, of war crimes. And uh, the reason why I bring this up is because this is the first passage that we really see in uh, the Pentateuch, but it's going to stretch beyond the Pentateuch into the prophets of, of God's judgment and violence against nations. The definition of genocide is, is as follows. This is the UN official definition. Genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So there's a little bit of ambiguity um, in the definition when the, it uses the phrase in whole or in part. And I guess it would be difficult to determine what, what is a part of a nation that would then warrant the indictment of genocide. However, the text for today, and I would say that this is one of the, the um, less intense passages in Scripture that refers to this type of activity on the part of God. The text today um, leaves little to guess about what God's intent is. As Amy read, um, the Lord says, um, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. So that is the wiping out of an entire people. So violence in the Bible, particularly by God or by his people on the instruction of God, is a significant detractor um, in our era to faith in God and to faith in Jesus Christ or to acknowledge the, the validity of the biblical God. The calls that you see in the New Testament in particular for us to be gracious and merciful, Christ himself calling us to be gracious and merciful, to turn the other cheek, seems contradictory to what we see in many of the stories in the Old Testament. If Jesus is indeed the word and the image of the invisible God, then one of the things that we need to recognize is that when we, when we hear speech or we hear a record of the angel of the Lord appearing to people throughout the Old Testament, we need to recognize that that is Jesus. It's not Jesus incarnate as the Son of God on earth after Mary gave birth to him. Okay, It's not that person of Jesus, but as the begotten Son of God, as the Word of God, as that which came forth from God. All right, that's the idea of son, that's the idea of being begotten, that you come out of, that you come forth from. So anything that proceeds from the invisible father in word, in, in, in things that we can see or feel or hear or touch is, is, is Christ. And so you have the Christ of the Old Testament, the image of the invisible God, 
saying these kinds of things and inflicting judgment upon nations. And then you have the Christ who came to earth and asks us to turn the other cheek. And so today's text, today's text, we have, it's a short text and there are really two big issues in it. And, and I have struggled in putting together the, the, the series schedule which of the two things do I want to pick out today as the primary subject? Um, so there's, there's really two things, as I've said. One, there's this, Moses and Israel are, are demonstrating some growth. They're demonstrating some growth, and this passage is really intended to teach that, but we also then have this statement by God, I will, walk, I will wipe out Amalek from memory, from under the heavens. And so... I thought, it was, I thought it would be appropriate to at least, because we're going to hit these, we're going to hit some of these other uh, battle scenes later in the Pentateuch, and so I thought I would um, start with a little bit of a primer today on, on what does it mean to recognize, and I think we, I mean, one of the, one of the, the books that I was using for a little bit of research and just comparing and analysis uh, has a chapter called The Genocidal God. You got Greg Boyd, he's a popular pastor here in the Twin Cities, has written an entire book on the violence of God. And so there's a recognition that if you, if you were to look at, at what happens and of God's intent, you, you have to come down with the perspective that God is a genocidal God. And so it needs to be explained. And I thought in light of all of what's going on in our news and what's happening in Russia, this is these ideas on our mind. Now, uh, I do want to touch a little bit, though, on this growth of Mo on Moses' part and on Israel's part. So last week, we looked at Israel's grumblings against God and against Moses and Aaron for the hardships that they were facing after coming out of Egypt. And so their initial grumbling was when they, their, their backs were against the sea, Pharaoh's armies are coming, and they're like, you should have left us in Egypt, we could have died there rather than out here in the wilderness, and so the next four grumblings that they demonstrate, which is what we covered last week, was all about water and food. Yeah, you should, if you weren't going to feed us out here, you should have left us in Egypt where we enjoyed meat pots and fresh bread to the full. All right, and so we saw these grumblings, and, and the, the last question when, when, the, the, when, when the text is summarizing kind of where they were at, it said, you know, they had this question. Is the Lord among us or not? And that was the question that they continued to have, and that's why they continued to grumble. Is the Lord among us? And then there's this story then of, of Amalek coming to fight against Israel. And so this question, is God among us or not, really gets resolved in their minds, and we can see it. So immediately after this, this record of their grumblings, Amalek attacks Israel, and again, it's short, but it's very intelling. So there's no complaining. They see the armies of Amalek coming. Israel doesn't complain. Israel doesn't grumble. Moses just doesn't sit there in silence saying, just wait, don't say anything, the Lord's going to deliver us. Moses takes action. Moses takes leadership. And he says, Joshua, collect an army, go and fight. I'll go stand on top of the hill. I'll hold up the staff. Remember, when he was waiting for God to do something at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's armies, God said, what are you waiting for me for? Take your staff and do this. So Moses doesn't even pray or cry out to God. 
He just takes his staff. He's recognizing the power that he has. Israel is recognizing the power that God has given them. They are all recognizing that indeed, yes, the Lord is among us. So Moses takes action, Joshua takes action, and they win. God delivers them. So they are, so the text is wanting us to, to see that as they have been developing experiences with God, lapses of faith, yep, absolutely, but repenting, they come to the point where they're at a place where they can acknowledge oh, God is with us. Just like all of us, we all grow and we make mistakes and we learn and eventually we grow more and more confident in our walk with the Lord. We learn what it means to abide in him. We understand what it means to, to live wholeheartedly before him. We, we confess our sin as soon as we recognize it in our heart or in our thoughts or in our actions or in our speech. And God continues to forgive. This is what Jesus calls cleansing. We are in this need of constantly washing our feet, even though our whole bad body has already been bathed. That's the metaphor in John 13. So Israel is coming to this point where they are growing. Okay, that's the first part. And if you have some questions about that in the, in the end, um, we, can, we can still talk about it more. So I want to talk, spend most of the time on this idea of God being a genocidal God. This, this word uh, genocide really, it, it, it didn't come into the language until the 1940s after World War II. Um, but anyway, it's, it's obviously a significant part of our vocabulary now, especially now in the last few weeks. Um, and I think it's one of the hardest questions for the, the Bible to address. I mean, if we're going to be, if we're going to let the text speak for itself. Now, a lot of the, a lot of the, the books that are out there on, on this, um, they, they, they skirt away from what's obviously in the text. Uh, some will say that um, what the, these statements that are attributed to God really aren't God. It's, it's Moses and his people. God isn't this. And, and it, that really, it's just not what the text reflects. There's no way to get around what the text is saying about God and what God is saying. So before we get into uh, the textual analysis of it, there's some, a few things we need to consider about ourselves and the way we look at things, okay, as Western people in 21st century America. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first thing is that we, t we tend to look at the world as a collection of individuals. We tend to look at what happens to people and nations is what's happening to individuals and that every individual has rights and privileges, right? Um, if we see individuals getting judgment or getting punished for the actions of nations, uh, we question and wonder whether or not these individuals are getting due process. Are they getting punished for the actions of others? And to judge the many because of a few, because we can recognize that oftentimes nations that engage in these kinds of things 
uh, that seem to warrant God's judgment um, are because of the actions and judgments of a few. So, I mean, if we look at the situation with Russia and Ukraine, it's increasingly clear, at least it is to everybody outside of Russia, that, that it's, it's President Putin and the, the close group of people around him that have largely created this situation to the point even where they're lying to their own military and soldiers about what they're doing. So you're seeing defections from from the Russian army and, and them saying, listen, we didn't know what we were doing. And they go into people's homes and they're looking for Nazis. So to us, it seems like to punish an entire nation for the actions of a few are unreasonable. Now, we have to recognize that this is a relatively historically new way at looking at things. I mean, there's a reason why um, the Bill of Rights and our Constitution says the things it does. It's because the individual historically has largely been um, neglected as the primary focus of concern, whereas in our day, that is the primary focus of concern, the rights and privileges of the individual. So that's one thing. Second thing, we also have this lens of multiculturalism that we have to acknowledge. It's part of our uh, liberal Western mindset, not liberal from the standpoint of liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat, just in terms of a liberal understanding or even a way of understanding the world from the standpoint of the value of individuals. And so the, the, this perspective of multiculturalism has this notion that all cultures are equal and valid. All cultures are of equal worth and, and then what typically, what, well, what is part of that idea is that judgments about the, the morality or justice or righteousness of a particular culture, those kinds of judgments are suspended unless we see that a culture is violating the rights of individuals. And so we see in, in stories like this that we see in the Old Testament, so why is God favoring Israel over other nations? These are just other nations with different cultures. So the third thing is that um, we have acclimated to um, Western society's highest ambition. So there's this uh, South Korean philosopher, his name is Byun Chul Han, a relatively new philosopher on the scene, uh, but his works are increasingly widely, widely respected. And, and what he does, he's, he's written... He's written a lot of things, but, but over the last few years, he's got uh, maybe eight of these small little booklets where he is addressing um, just kind of the effects of modern life. And so one of his, his, his books is on, is on power. One of them is called, and this is the, uh, the, the book that I'm referring to today, The, the Palliative Society. And so his argument is that, that our highest ambition, our highest ambition is to live a pain-free life and to avoid pain and ultimately, obviously, then to avoid death. These are our highest ambitions. And so what he says is that this, this causes us in what we pursue to live in this constant state of anesthesia. There's just, we're just kind of deadened to the world around us in terms of its reality because of our fear of pain. We are numbing our, we, 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 the things that we do, the things that we engage in are intending to numb ourselves. And he says there's, there's three perspectives historically that cultures have had in how they understand the human body. The first one is that our, our human body is literally an outpost to a higher purpose. 
So our bodies are here to accomplish the objectives of whatever higher, higher ambition we see ourselves serving. The second way to view the human body is that it is a means of production. And so we use our bodies to produce goods and services for the benefit of others. So those are two ways. And the third way, he says, we are in an age where the body is an, is an end to itself. We live and use our bodies to protect our bodies. He says that's where Western culture is at at this point, by and large. So as, as Christians... As Christians, we have tempered this a little bit, but we have to recognize that we are affected by our culture, all right? We are indeed affected by our culture. Christianity has what he calls, and I love this phrase, we have a hermeneutic of pain. Christianity gives us the ability to interpret and analyze and understand the suffering that we're going through, okay? Because that is a substantive part of what the gospel teaches us. How to interpret the pain that we're going through so that, so that we can then see that, that there is no suffering that needs to be wasted, and that it is a means of opportunity to show that there's a greater hope and a greater glory in life than living pain-free. And that if we can be, and that if we can avoid grumbling and complaining, then we can live as lights in the midst of a dark world. And so the suffering and the pain that we experience is always an opportunity then to live as a light for the gospel in a world that is anti-suffering, anti-pain. But again, we're not immune to society's pressures. We should abhor death because we recognize that it is not God's will. Death was not God's will. And so we should have this, this, this violent apprehension toward death, but we also need to realize that it is the product of sin and evil, and that we're all guilty of it, and that it's the likely outcome. The wages of sin is indeed death. And so we, we have this abhorrence and hatred of death because it is, at anything, it is completely opposed and antithetical to who God is in his nature. But we also recognize that, that that's tempered by the reality of it in our world because of, because of sin. So we should not be surprised when God is executing judgment we should not be surprised, especially if we can understand it as an effort to, pre to preserve life and to minimize suffering. And the fourth thing, it's hard for us to imagine a society not based on the rule of law. Be that's the, because that's the society that we live in. We live in a society based on the rule of law. Now, we can think that crime runs free, and we can think that the courts and the police and the legal system and the justice system and all these things in our government, we can, that, that they are completely corrupt, that there's no good in them, um, and that, that the rich and the powerful run everything. We can, we can believe that. And to some degree, it's true. And the biblical testimony, the biblical testimony uh, affirms that idea. All right? Every complex society sees those dynamics. However, what we experience in our culture is nowhere like a culture that has no rule of law at all. We cannot, it, it, it's, and it's hard for us to imagine it. And I don't think we can imagine it unless we like watch movies where we can see that there's just a complete disregard and ignoring of any sort of, of, lawless, of law. And so what you see just is complete lawlessness. 
a lawless society is a society that has no protections, no concern for rights of anyone. So those are the four things that really are, are in our minds when we think about nations and individuals and, and judgment and justice. So the next thing that I want to look at then is what is going on in the people of Amalek? What is, what is going on that, that, is, that is causing <clears throat> excuse me, God to say, I will wipe out the memory of these people from under the sun? If we go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God tells Abraham, your people are going to be enslaved to a nation for, for 400 years. They're going to stay there because they're not, I'm not ready for them to enter into the land that I've promised you because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. All right? So there's this idea that God is suspending judgment of the nations for centuries until they get to a point where their, where their violence and their sin, their iniquities and transgressions are so abhorrent that he's got to do something about it. So what does it mean? So what does it mean for the iniquities to come to a point of completion? What does that look like? Well, in, 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 and, so, and then several other times we see God telling Israel, do not practice those things that the Egyptians did. Do not practice the things of the people of the land. I am getting rid of those people because of these practices. I am moving you in because I want righteousness and justice to be established on the face of this earth. You are to be a people of righteousness and justice. The people that I'm, I'm, I'm judging through you are people that have reached a level of sin and transgression that I can't let it go on any longer. So here are the characteristics of the people of the land and of the people of Egypt that they were that they that God says do not be like. So there are six characteristics. First of all, the people, especially the men, have unrestrained unrestrained sexual exploitation. And there is no legal remedy or recourse for people that they sexually violate. Parents are selling their daughters to traffickers and pimps. Men, mostly, are exploiting any less powerful human being, man or woman, child or adult, within their spheres. So there is widespread incest, there is widespread adultery, and then there's just widespread, um, I can't remember what they call it these days, where husbands and wives are just exchanging themselves. It's just, you know, switching. There is widespread adultery. There is bestiality. So obviously with all of this just unrestrained sexual exploitation, you have a lot of children being born that were not intended. So with these children, they are burning them to sacrifices to false gods. Okay, now, one of the things that, you, that, we, that the text is really clear on, um, we would anticipate that these kinds of activities have laws against them. Our culture does. Yes. 
what God says about these practices is that these were the customs and laws. There weren't laws against these things. There were structures that supported them. So they're burning their children in sacrifice to false gods. There is harsh treatment of immigrants and the poor that leads to a greater amount of poverty and injustice and abuse to these vulnerable populations. Any judgments that they had. So they had systems of, of judging, all right? You, there were, there were um, I wouldn't say that they were courts, or the people that would make decisions, and they were the rich and powerful. There were unfair business practices that were widespread with bribery and corruption, kind of the, 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 the norm. There's no, there was no respect for authority. So parents and the elderly were despised and mistreated, mistreated and forgotten. The majority of these things were perpetrated by rich and powerful and just the men. But as we see, I mean, you, you, can, you see this movies, you see it in culture, there's, you see it in history, we'll see it in the biblical record in the book of Amos and a number of other prophets. Um, the women under these men support it and promote it and, and energize the efforts. So there's not like a bunch of innocent women that are just standing by and watching this happen. They're, they're a part of it. And obviously widespread violence. So the question that we need to ask is could we watch these kinds of things happening for 400 years? And if we had the power to do something, would we just sit back and not do it? I mean, Amanda and I were, were, were watching a movie this week. I was on the, 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 the treadmill and she was on the bike. Or the opposite way around, I can't remember. So we, had, we were watching a movie. And it was this, this story, it's a true story. It was a situation in Bosnia where this group of, of male soldiers, and it was male police from Bosnia, it was the UN workers, it was other volunteers, there was this, they had created this massive sex trafficking ring, human trafficking, and we had to stop watching it. And it's a true story. We can't even watch a movie. Can you, and just imagine seeing all this occur on, a, on nationwide scales, for 400 years, if you had the power to do something, my guess is that we would. And it's not like it's just a few bad actors. This, these are the cultural norms that everybody has just become accustomed to. And so I think it's ironic, you know, because there's this big question, and then there's a philosophical name for it. I can't remember what it is. But the question is, if God were so loving and so powerful, why doesn't he do something about all the injustice in the world? Well, the Old Testament is the story of God doing that. So that since he hasn't done anything, there must be no God. But when we read about his judgment, we bristle at it. Most likely because we, we just do not view, we view things as individuals, not as nations and cultures. What I want to show this morning is that it's, God's judgment is pretty consistent. It's not just in these isolated episodes where we see the nation of Israel completely wiping out another nation. So Genesis 2 and 3, we see that disobedience to God brings death and suffering. Genesis 6, God wipes out every human being on the face of the planet except one family. And the flood. 
Because God is dealing with all of humanity. He promises not to do it again. So he shortens the lifespan of human beings, and he says, I'm not going to do this again. Well, we get to Genesis 9 and 10, you see um, the formation of nations, because remember, prior to Babel, all people are one nation. We're all one people prior to Babel. And it's our sin and arrogance toward God that creates nations. And so now God starts dealing with nations. So among all these nations, he raises up a nation, the nation of Israel. And he says, you will be a nation of righteousness and justice. But as we saw last week, he says, if you, if you disobey me, I will bring the afflictions upon you that I brought upon Egypt. Okay, God does not show favoritism. He's saying he's raising up a nation to be a, a nation of justice and righteousness. Well, we have, so that, so we have, and then we have got Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah has two big pronounced indictments against them. The first one is their rampant sexual immorality of the whole, of, of the entire cities. And then in the prophets, we see that they were especially oppressive to the poor and to the immigrant. So those are the two big accusations against Sodom and Gomorrah. Not 10 righteous people were found in those two cities. Because God said he would spare. I will spare them if I could find 10 righteous people. He didn't. So he destroyed them. Then we get to Egypt. Egypt had these types of lifestyles described above. God says, do not, do not act according to the practices of the people of Egypt and the people of this land. So we saw what God has done with Egypt. And now we have the nation of Israel, where he begins to use Israel as a force of judgment against the, the nations of the world, because it's part of God demonstrating that righteousness and justice as a people and connected to God will rise to the top and they will have the, the power and the wisdom and the strength and my presence. Anybody that blesses them, I will bless. If you curse them, you're going to be destroyed. And that's what we see. However, Israel is not exempt from God's judgment because when Israel starts acting in the same way of the nations that they dispossess, in fact, God says, Israel, you have acted worse than the nations that I have dispossessed. He brings in the Assyrians, which are known particularly for their violence and their cruelty. And he brings in the Babylonians the same way. And he exiles Israel. Israel is not exempt from God's judgment. God does not show partiality. And then Jesus comes. And so it's God is working with all humanity. Then God is working with nations. And among the nations, he raises up a nation. That nation fails. God brings Jesus Christ. He's once again dealing with all humanity. Jesus Christ hasn't set up his own nation. Jesus Christ creates a kingdom made up of all the nations of the world. Every tongue and language and people group will be represented in the kingdom of God. That's what he has declared. And the judgment of God stops with Jesus for a season. And Jesus now takes on all the sins of the world. Jesus takes on the judgment. Jesus takes on the punishment. There's no more nation on the planet that God is using as a means of judgment. 
to bring justice to the other nations. We see nations rise, we see nations fall. But we don't see a nation that God has singled out and is using to bring judgment upon the other nations. Now, we usually read these stories as outsiders. But we need to read as if we were the people in these nations. Are we innocent of violence? Are we innocent of sexual immorality? Or I can't raise any of my hands on these. Are we innocent of disrespecting authorities? Are we innocent of lying, cheating, stealing? Are we innocent of discrimination and prejudice? No. Not at all. And we just continue to pass on our sins to the next generation. We can see in our kids our own sins. We can see in ourselves the sins of our parents. We may say, I am not going to be like my parents. We turn 40, we look back, I'm just like my mom and dad. That's what happens. And outside of the work of Christ in our lives, what happens over generations is that things just keep getting worse. Could any of us hold off for 400 years? I, I, don't, I just don't think we could. But alongside the stories of God's judgment is the story of God's long-suffering with humanity and his pursuit of us to show mercy. And we're going to look next week on Easter, we're going to see where God is, is longing to be in our presence. But what the text will really show is that, my goodness, we need a mediator between us and the Lord. Not because the Lord requires it, because our own, but it's because of our own consciences, our own sense of guilt that we recognize that we need it. But do we realize that we are in need of God's mercy? Do we, do we realize that God has poured out his righteous judgment on Jesus? The, the judgment that God pours out on those nations, God poured all of it out on Jesus Christ so that we could be spared of that, of that annihilation and extermination and destruction. So God is still at work among the nations. He said the gospel is going to go forth to all the nations, and that's where we're still going. And one of the and that's and it's not nations as we think of nations; it's people groups, it's languages, it's ethnicities. One of the exciting things about our project in India is that they are going forward into into villages, into people groups. There's like 750 languages in the in the country of India. Twelve percent, twelve percent speak Hindi. I think it's twelve percent. I think that's what they said. But there are hundreds of languages. What's exciting about the, about the work that we're supporting in India is that they're going into these villages. They're translating the Bible. A lot of it is illiterate, so they're, they're just telling stories because the people that we're working with have multiple languages. And so there's tribal languages, there's village languages. There's, and so they're able to go into these places where there is no church, they've never heard the name of Jesus, and they can share the gospel with them. So that's what, that's what God has promised to do. I will take the gospel to every tribe and nation. So God is still working in these people groups. He's still working in these nations. He's still establishing churches. Nations are rising and nations are falling. In terms of the nation, I mean, most of the nations that we know of as nations in terms of its current political form, I mean, what's the U.S., 19, 1776, 250 years? 
And we're one of the older ones because there was just a wave of revolution across, over the last several centuries with a lot of countries becoming more democratic. Okay, so nations are rising, nations are falling. God is still at work in all of the people, groups, and tribes of the world. And eventually he will establish on this earth his kingdom. The kingdom has started. Jesus is drawing people into it. He is creating children of God. He is making citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He is pulling us out of the, of the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 teaches. So God is still working to build his nation, his kingdom, his people, his family. And then we see at the end of the book, Jesus will return and Jesus will bring judgment on the nations once again. And all who have turned to God, and Revelation is quite clear, all who have turned to God are in the kingdom of God. Those who are still committed, and the text is very clear, there are people that do not turn to God are committed to the types of transgressions and iniquities that I just described for you a few minutes ago. It's what, they're still committed to their, to their immoralities, to their lying, to their, to their cheating, to their violence. God's judgment is consistent. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to show. Jesus' judgment is consistent, and he has every right to do it because he stepped forward and took it upon himself. He took it upon himself and then provided mercy for all of us. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for your word, uh, its clarity, its severity. But Lord God, we most thank you for its mercy, the communication of the mercy of God. And so, Lord God, we, we do pray that you would strengthen us to be a people um, that is united in your truth, that knows, honors, loves, and worships you, and God, who, is, who, are, who are committed to this effort to take the gospel and to the people of our lives, to continue to, to multiply churches as outposts for the gospel, uh, not only in this world, God, but in, 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 in our nation, but also to the nations. In your son's name we pray, amen.